Hey guys, uh, technically it's Reverend Ben, so <laughs> please just call me Ben. Thank you, Pastor Brennan. Um, we are continuing and closing out. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Uh, we're closing out our identity series, and before we get into content, uh, some of you, most of you maybe probably know me a little bit. Uh, some of you may not know me at all. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the multiplication and networking pastor here at the church, and before I became a Christian, one month before I turned 19, my freshman year of college. And before I did that during the summer and the previous two summers before college, I worked construction. And a lot of the construction that I did uh, dealt with pouring concrete. Uh, and so we poured a lot of driveways, we did a lot of sidewalks, we did a lot of basements um, for houses uh, and pouring those. And so I'm not good at it. It took me, I would say, if I worked the job for seven months, it took me six months to learn a little bit uh, and then quit a month after that because I didn't move back to Huron at all. Um, but there was two weeks in to first working in this job, first figuring out what does it look like just to like, do construction and, and, and pour concrete with these guys. We had just poured footings for a basement. And so you have to have footings that allow the foundation to put your basement wall and to put the house on. And so we make frames for these footings uh, and we... we keep the frames in by pounding in these huge steel stakes to keep the frames. And we tie them together with two triangle-looking steel ties. And it just keeps the frame together. Uh, and so a few days after the concrete settles, after, after it, um, I was going to say melts, and that makes zero sense, after it gets concrete, uh, you go and you take the framing off, and then you reframe to be able to pour the basement walls. I'm two weeks into this job. I've never seen what it looks like to take off the framing. And so they, they, there's multiple jobs that the whole company is working on at, at one, one time. And they drop me off at this site. They give me a hammer and they say, hey, Ben, I want you to take the ties off, take the steel rods out, put the framing in pieces. We'll be back in a couple hours to get you. I've never seen it done. I've never done it. And so I go and I just start hammering away at these frames. I'm pounding on these steel rods, trying to get them out. Two hours later, they come back and I maybe am 25% of the way done. Maybe. They get out of the car. They cuss me out a little bit. And they say, Geetson, what are you doing? Like, what have you been doing this whole time? And I said, I didn't know what to do. You didn't tell me what to do. And I said, why didn't you call? Like, I don't know. I had, literally, is what I said. I was like, I don't know. But I had this mindset as I got dropped off that I was no longer a part of the company. I was by myself doing a job that I was asked to do. And I think a lot of times, as followers of Jesus... We forget we are a part of something so much bigger than just individually trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. As we step into identity tonight, Pastor Brennan talked about you are a child of God. And last week he said you are redeemed. And tonight we're going to talk about how you are a part of a whole. I think there's a little bit of an identity crisis that we are going through as followers of Jesus. And we forget about this reality that we are a part of something bigger. I'm going to use a handheld. You guys okay with that? Can I use this one? Is that right, Jaina? Or the blue one? Brennan, you got your mic? Mic check. Check one. Yes. Thanks, Pastor Brennan. (laughs) I think that we have a little bit of an identity crisis. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes we have to, we, we feel like, or we believe or or make ourselves believe that we have to figure out what it looks like to walk as followers of Jesus by ourselves. That we can't ask questions. 
that there's moments that things I'm wrestling with or things I need prayer about that I just, I need to figure out. I can just go to God and I'll just pray to him, which is true. But there's something that God has created within us that's a part of our identity that he has made us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. You see, our identity is not just individual. It is communal. If you look at the majority of the New Testament letters, they're not written to one person. Some are. The majority of them are written to communities of people trying to figure out what does it look like to live as followers of Jesus together in community in the context that they're in. So we look at the word, and we look at the word and what it says about a communal identity. And so the scripture we're going to be in tonight is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. And a little bit of context. And it's the sermon series that we're going through on Sunday mornings called Different. What does it look like to live differently as exiles, as followers of Jesus in a foreign land, in a foreign country? But First Peter is written to local churches that face an identity crisis. These congregations scattered about the Roman province of Asia Minor and been largely ignored as irrelevant. And then they started to gain some notoriety. They started to gain some influence because that's what Jesus and the Holy Spirit do. And once that happened, they started experiencing suffering and persecution. So much so that they became a part, these followers of Jesus in, the Ro- in Asia Minor, in the, uh, a part of the Roman Empire, they became a part of a genocidal uh, persecution led by Emperor Nero. And so at this moment, First Peter recognizes that these, these churches spread throughout all of Asia Minor, and he and Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes to them. He wrote to these churches to urge them to stand firm in their faith. He explains what it means to be a Christian. He explains what it means to be a community of believers, trying to live not just together, but also together as a community, as followers of Jesus, but also in the world, in the context, in the, in the uh, community that they were living in. And I think sometimes, as I think about the church, there are some things that we just have to automatically negate about how we define what church is, right? Church is more than just a building that we're sitting in. It's more than an organization that we're a part of, more than a charity that we give time or money to. It's more than a club that we socialize in. The church, the community of believers, is a redeemed community because of what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so a part of who we are, a part of our identity because we love Jesus, is we are a part, and you are a part of a whole. You have not just individual identities, but you have communal identities. And First Peter, what that does, and what he does in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, is he gives us an understanding of what it means to be a part of this community. He defines for us how we are a part of a whole. So if you have your Bible, go and open up with me to First uh, Peter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 10. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The first aspect of the reality that you are a part of a whole is that you are a part of a spiritual house. Peter says here that you 
because of the living stone, are also living stones being built up into a spiritual house. He's saying, we are putting, you are being put together as a spiritual house. Now, I shared the story about construction. One, it was true, and I did that, and I was terrible at it, and I thought I had to do it alone. But also, because Peter gives us this really cool imagery of what it looks like, literally, of how they built houses in the day. Uh, if you know anything about the geographical land st- structure of Jerusalem, of, of Nazareth, there were not a lot of trees, especially in Nazareth where Jesus was and where he was lived for the majority of his life. So what they would use to build houses was not wood, which is, I think, how we'd assume you'd build houses because that's what we know, but they would literally use stone. They would use stone. And what's also interesting about Jewish culture is that the sons of a specific family would learn the profession of their dads. In Mark 13, or no, excuse me, Matthew 13 and Mark 6, it's the same story. Jesus is, is preaching in the synagogue in Jerusalem. He's in the temple, and he's, he's just sharing wisdom. He's just sharing incredible wisdom. And the people of his town, in his hometown in Nazareth, look at Jesus, who's sharing these things, and say, who is this guy? Is this not the son of the carpenter Joseph? Is this not Mary's son? And so just from that simple fact, we could make the assumption, and a lot of scholars would agree and have made this assumption, that Jesus most likely, especially since there's a gap of about 18 years of Jesus' life, that Jesus probably learned the profession of his father. And now while Matthew 13 says carpenter, the Greek word there is tecton. And tecton can literally and should be literally translated as laborer. It could have meant blacksmith, could have meant carpenter, but most likely meant stonemason. One who knew how to craft and shape and use stones to make beautiful things. Not just beautiful things, but functional things and purposeful things. And even most likely, based off, again, where they lived, uh, what they had around them, Joseph and Jesus, as he learned the profession of his father, now we know Immaculate Conception, all that, but his earthly father, Joseph, as he learned the profession, nine out of ten projects most likely were uh, made with stone. He would have been trained in this. Like, Jesus would have been trained in stonemasonry, following in his father's profession. So when Peter uses a description for the believers, for believers, for the community, for the family of God, and he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There's incredible language here. One, the readers there were most likely Hebrew Christians, so they would have understood this language. They would have most likely even made the connection back to Jesus, who in his earthly life helped his dad build stone houses and was continuing to build houses of living stones into something great and beautiful. Now, I don't know about you, you need a contractor, right, to build things. You can't just say, this thing's going to happen, you need a contractor. And when I think of stones, this is what I think of. I think of square, perfect bricks. I see landscaping, I see we have this ridiculous apple tree that is terrible in our front yard. But the foundation of it is got this beautiful landscaping that, are, that is put together with perfect, put together stones, bricks. This is what I think of when I think of a stonemason. But this isn't the kind of stone or brick that they would have used to put together houses. Would you go ahead and throw up that first picture? Uh, this is most likely, now this would have been a house constructed uh, around Jerusalem, around Nazareth, that would have been actually a rich family because it's double-decker. Literally, there's two, there's two floors to this house. But as you see it, the stones that were used were different shapes and different sizes. Filled and, and laid out with a ton of plaster and a ton of clay put together so that the house could be functional, so that the walls could be strong. They weren't perfect shaped square stones because, or bricks, 
because they didn't have the tools to do that. What they most likely had and what they did have were stones that looked like this. A little bigger. Some may be this size. But as you look at this stone, as you look at this rock, it's one that looks misshapen. It's not perfectly square. I think for me sometimes what I wrestle with and what I know I have wrestled with and I know what other people wrestle with is that we think we have to be perfectly square, ready, no flaws to enter and be a part of God's community and family. When in reality, when Peter says you are like living stones being put together as a spiritual house, he's taking the rock. You see, and a stonemason would study all the rocks that he had in his possession. He would have these rocks in piles. He would lay them out. He would see how they were made, shaped, flaws, imperfections, and perfections. And he would know exactly where to place a specific stone because he had studied all the rocks. He knew which stones would fit together and be put in a specific place. You see, stonemasons wouldn't shape it perfectly into squares so that they would stack on top of each other. They would study the rock. They would know the rock. They would know the stone. And then they would know where to place it. So the first aspect of being built up into a spiritual house is coming to a recognition that I, when I see this, or when I see myself, and in my imperfections, and in my weaknesses, and when I assume that I can't be used, or can't serve well, I'm an introvert. You know, I'm shy. This rock's getting heavy. I'm going to put it down. I'm shy. So, like, I, how am I supposed to share the gospel with someone? Now, you see Pastor Brennan and Ben, and they're up there, and they're, they're extroverts, right? And they got a loud. I'm loud. I guess you're not as loud as I am. But it's like they got, they're good speakers. Brennan's a better speaker. We're kind of, got kind of good speaker. Like, they got the gifts for it, and they got, like, I just don't have that. You see, when we see imperfection weaknesses, when we see our own personality as something to get in the way of being able to be used by God, what Jesus sees is perfection. And he sees, I created you for a specific purpose. So when he looks at you and what you see as imperfection or weakness, he sees as strength and can use as strength. Your personality introvert or extrovert, your giftings, because it's how he created what you think are flaws, what you think are hurts, your story. He sees, he knows, and he places you in a perfect spot to be used for his purpose, for your good and his glory. Another aspect of being built into a spiritual house is that reality of we are laid upon the cornerstone, which is Jesus. Now, again, every house in this day, you can go to that, that second picture. I think it's up there. Now, this is an actually uh, a, a, dig, a dig site, an excavation of a house 2,000 years ago in Nazareth. And I don't know if you can see on the bottom right that big, huge stone right there. Every single house in this time would have had a cornerstone that was the first stone that was put in place to set the angles, the levels of every other stone that was going to get built. If the cornerstone was off by a little bit, the entire house would crumble. So the cornerstone was the stone that was taking the most time to set. It had to be perfect because it also set the angles and, and, and the placement of all the other four corners. The cornerstone was the thing in which they laid all the other stones on. If it was off a little bit, the rest of the house would be off. But our cornerstone was Jesus. 
You see, Jesus is the foundation of our life. First for salvation, and then how to live life with one another. First for salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, he is our cornerstone. And we know he is perfect. And then also for life. He's not only set an example for us on what it looks like to live life in relationship with each other and with the world, but surrendered fully to the will of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life, an obedient life to the Father. And he set the trajectory for us as the cornerstone to know how to live with one another and how to be a community and followers, ultimately, of him. So we're living stones. And what we see as imperfections or weakness, God uses as strength to be a part of his house, his family. And what is the spiritual house? The spiritual house is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, belonging to Jesus and for Jesus. The second thing that we see in Scripture is that you are God's people. You are the part of God's people. And there's four different aspects that Peter uses, and all four of them have references to the Old Testament. All four of them. And we're going to just, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, Real quick, when I go through these four things, know that this is not, here's what you have to live up to. Here's who you're supposed to be. Peter says, you are these things. Identity. Receive it. Believe it. It's not something that you have to live out to earn or achieve a certain status or, or, or favor from God. It's a reality of who you are as a follower of Jesus. And you get to live out of this identity and these identities. So four aspects that all have Old Testament references of being a part of God's people. One, you are chosen. A chosen people. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. Brennan did it the first week. If you want to go, go back, listen to what he talked about as a child of God being chosen. Um, the readers and hearers of this would have known immediately. This is Deuteronomy 7. And here's what Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says. So the honor is for you who believe. Um, excuse me, wrong one. Uh, it was not because you were more in number. This is, this is in Deuteronomy. Moses wrote this down speaking to the Israelites, questioning like, why are we the chosen people of God? Why is he calling us the chosen people? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Chosen, to be chosen, is the loving initiative by which God has saved us in Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people. And because he chose you, he's made you, as Brennan said, a child of God. Not merely an individual selected, or individuals selected one by one, left in isolation to figure out how to live this life, but bonded together, not of physical descent, but of spiritual birth. You are a chosen people. The second thing that Peter says is, you are a part of a royal priesthood. So these chosen believers were called out from the world, and he says, you are a royal priesthood. And again, for an audience that was most likely Hebrew Christians, this wouldn't have made sense. Because the entire Hebrew Bible, which they had, their entire history of, of, the, of how God used and worked with, among the Israelites, was it had the king and the priests completely separated. And so to use the language royal priesthood, Peter is putting together two things that we, they would have known as to be separated. Right, the priest... Uh, was the one who, and the only one able to enter the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people, the only one who could enter and be a part of um, the presence and in the presence of God. The king was special uh, in Israel because he was anointed with oil actually by the priest. So the king was equipped and empowered by God to do the task of ruling over Israel, of fighting battles for the Lord. We see time and time again in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit coming on the king and winning battles. This priest was anointed and therefore empowered by the Spirit to minister to God. God, uh, to minister on behalf of God to his people. But again, these privileges as, as priest and as king were not for everyone. 
The king could not be priest. A priest could not be king. They came from different tribes. And so to have them together would have thrown off these Israelites, these Hebrew Christians who have given their life to Jesus, living in a foreign land, trying to figure out what it means to be a community of people, are now called a royal priesthood. And Peter puts together something that forever they would have associated as being separate. And we know even, there, and there's, again, example over and over again, how they are separate. We, we hear this, uh, there's a story for Samuel, I think, 13, where King Saul is about to go into battle. And the Lord told him, wait for Samuel to come to offer sacrifice to the Lord on behalf for this battle. And Saul, in his impatience, as king, became priest and offered the sacrifice. And it was in that moment that he said, you no longer are basically king. I'm going to find up and raise up a man after my own heart. And that's where we get David, because Saul's disobedience. Because Saul wanted him to be both priest and king. Something that was separate. And now Peter says, these two are together. You are a royal priesthood. How is this possible? We are royal priests. Because there's a reality and a fact that we have been united with Christ. There's a phrase, I was just thinking, I was like, we are royal priests because we've been united and have a relationship with the royal priest. He has made us a royal priest. Romans 8.17 calls us co-heirs with Christ, ruling on, on his behalf. The earth now, and there's aspects of ruling now, and there's aspects of ruling, read Revelation, in the future as well, in the kingdom to come. Empowered as royal priests, as royal people, co-heirs with him to fight his battles through prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are priests in more ways than one. Yes, we offer acceptable sacrifices of worship according to Peter, and they're acceptable because of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection, but also priests in the sense that we have the ability and have been invited into an, into an intimate relationship with the Father, where only the priest who could enter the Holy Holies was able to be close and present living with him and in his presence. We as followers of Jesus, because the veil has been torn, are a royal priesthood, all invited to live in and be empowered into the presence of God. You as a follower of Christ have been chosen to be a royal priesthood. You minister with authority. One day you will rule and judge this earth. <clears throat> you fight the battles on behalf of the kingdom through prayer. You, all of you, have an intimate relationship with the Father. You intercede for people. Teach them God's word. We as followers of Jesus are a royal priesthood. The third thing he says is you are a holy nation. And think in terms of holy, what we talked about a few weeks ago in our God is series, where we said God is holy, and there are different aspects of what holy meant. And one of the definitions was set apart. Another word there is like sanctified. We talked about sanctification. God is sanctified. He is set apart. And so when we see holy nation here, again, it's not you are becoming holy. You need to be holy. Peter says you are a holy nation. You are a set apart people. Set apart for what? A lot of things. We're set apart for specific purposes of what he desires. We're set apart to, to worship him and him alone because Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. Ephesians, in my mind, it gives me imagery of Ephesians 2.10 where Paul is writing, again, to a church of believers in Ephesus, but also Asia Minor. And he knew his letter was going to get to all these different churches. And he's writing to them. Excuse me. And he says, for we are, Aaron, Pastor Aaron likes to use the language, y'all are, y'all are God's workmanship. You all are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that have been set beforehand by God long before you were even born. And so we are a holy nation, a set-apart people, 
as God's workmanship. And this Greek word there, uh, on, on other versions say, you are God's masterpiece. And the Greek word there is poema, where we get our word poem. And there's something different. I, I am not a poet even close. I sometimes don't understand poetry. I'll read stuff, I'm like, sweet, that's cute, it rhymed. Like, that's what I think. And that's unfair, because poetry is actually really cool. In fact, you can argue that a third of the Bible is most likely poetry. So it's intended for something different than just other, another type of genre, than history or story. It's poetry. And so when Paul says, you are God's masterpiece, you are his workmanship, he's saying, you are God's art to be on display for all to see. As a holy nation, you are a set-apart people created by him through Jesus Christ to be a work of art on display. Again, not this overwhelming weight to have to live up to a certain expectation of what it means to be holy, but living out of our identity as a set-apart people, as a holy nation, God's masterpiece and poem to the world to show his goodness and his glory. Another way said, you are the set-apart artistry of God laid out before the world showing his goodness and his glory. That is what it means to be a holy nation. Again, and this is together. This is not an individual thing you going out by yourself. It's a toge- this, this to me is what happens when we get together and serve a community like on Tuesday night. Where we can go as God's masterpiece, as his workmanship, and for a dis- display to the world his goodness and his glory together as a, as a body of people. This happens when Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love each other. What a poem it is to the world when we can actually live in unity and love, and love each other well. We are his artistry, his art on display for all to see. Last one, he says, you are God's special possession. My son Otis, um, who's two years old, he, we went, to, we went to Rapid City this past summer and we went to Bear Country. It was awesome, even though you're in the car like the whole time. It was phenomenal. I, I had way too much fun. I think I was the most giddy person in the vehicle. We have three kids. And, and Otis didn't really know what was happening. He was just excited. But we went to the gift shop, and we bought them all stuffed animals. And Otis doesn't know what he wants. Like he, he would get, literally, he would take anything we gave him. We gave him, but there was three stuffed animals that we kind of laid out in front of him. We said, hey, Otis, pick one. And I think he just put out his hand and grabbed one. That happened to be a fox. And so we said, what do you want to call it? What do you want to call your fox? And he said, Foxy. And Foxy is by far Otis's most prized possession in our house. He cannot fall, I think he can maybe fall asleep, but he has not fallen asleep without Foxy once since we've gotten in. He leaves Foxy in bed and sometimes tucks Foxy in because he knows when he gets home, he knows exactly where Foxy's going to be. The only time Foxy leaves his room Otis's room, not Foxy's room. The only time Foxy leaves the house is on Fridays so Otis can take him to daycare because it's his most prized possession. I don't know what we're going to do if we lose Foxy. (laughs) But Otis loves Foxy. Wants Foxy all the time. Snuggles with Foxy in the bed. Like, won't snuggle with me, but will snuggle with Foxy. It's the one thing he wants to show off to the world. It's the one thing he'll take out of our house as show and tell when he goes to daycare. Because it's his special possession. So when Peter says, you are God's special possession, 
There's this reality and this beauty that in, in being chosen, being declared a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, there is a love that God has for you. Yes, there's a purpose that he's declared for you, but you bring God great joy because he loves you, because you are his special possession. Literally is what the, what the language is. And special possession for a lot of things, but ultimately to bring God pleasure and joy. It gives me images of the baptism of Jesus before Jesus does any ministry. Again, Brandon talked about this a couple weeks ago. The heavens open up as he gets baptized. And with a loud voice, it says, this is my son. And, and the NLT says, who brings me great joy. We literally were created to be in relationship with God because God desired for us to experience the goodness and love he has known and what, forever with the Trinity that he desired to give us. Zephaniah, one of the Myron prophets, says it this way. The Lord, your God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. Your God loves you so much that he sings songs of rejoicing and joy over you because that's how much he loves you. You are his possession. And I think there's aspects, if we truly understood this, if our hearts could actually like grasp and receive this, it would deliver us from some insecurities and fears that we walk around with. We get told, or either by ourselves, our family, or the world, or, or, or other people, that a, a lot of different things, and I think a lot of different lies that we receive as identities. Now you're not smart enough. You're not talented enough. You're not a good enough leader. You're not a good enough follower. You're too tall. You're too short. You don't have the money. If we can grasp, receive, and rest in the reality of who God says we are and his love for us, those things will still come. But I think they'll be easier to let go of. I think they'll be easier, and have been in my life, been easier to battle. Last one. I'm going to invite the praise team up. So we are God's special house. As living stones being built up into this special house. Uh, the, on the foundation of who Jesus is as a cornerstone. We are God's people where he, he says you are chosen, a royal priesthood, holy nation, special possession. And the last aspect of our communal identity is that we are a part of God's purposes. So he says you are chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, special, special possession to declare that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So what are the purposes that we are a part of? To declare the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. What does it look like and mean to declare his praises? Do you know your story? Do you know what God has done and what God is doing? And declare that. Together, we get to declare that every Sunday that we gather. We declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into the wonderful light. We declare that when we meet together individually, like it should become a norm for us to be able to answer the question, what do you feel like God's been doing in your life? Because here's the reality. God is always moving. He's always working. He's always doing something. I think our pace of life has distracted enough in us, uh, us enough to not be able to recognize how he's moving. So a challenge for you to be able to declare the praises of him who, say, who brought you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
is every night this week, I want you to stop and look back on your day. Get a journal out. I'm, I'm pro, super pro journaling. Pastor Brennan and Aaron have, have brought me on to journaling more and more. And I see him doing it. And I see how they're able just to evaluate and process just what's happening in their own life. Take a journal, write it down, use your phone. And every night this week, and then hopefully for the rest of your life, look back. How did you see God move? Uh, open up your day. God, here's the events that happened. Here's the emotions that I experienced. Here's the conversations that I had. And so God revealed to me, how were you at work in those moments? And all of a sudden, you'll start to recognize and see what you would have at one moment in your life declared as a coincidence was actually God moving on your behalf for your good and his glory. And as you do it over and over again, those moments of evaluation, of processing your life every single night will become easier to see, God, I see how you were moving here. And you get into spaces like this and in a small group and you say, hey man, what do you feel like God's doing in your life? Oh, man, I don't know. I was, I was driving, I was driving to work the other day and my mom popped into my head. My friend popped into my head. Actually, your, your, your face, your name actually came up. And I started praying for you. And all of a sudden again, it's, it moves from what we think is coincidence is happening in our life to a recognition that God is actually on the move and working. And then we get together and we declare praises of him who's brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I'm going to end. And I'm not going to pray. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read over you some verses from Isaiah 43. Because Peter, who was Jewish, writing to Hebrew and Jewish Christians, most likely had Isaiah 43 in his mind when he calls his people a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a special possession, chosen people. And so I'm going to read over you Isaiah 43 before we enter into our final praise song. Would you go ahead and stand actually with me? And take whatever posture you need to um, to receive this. If it, even if it's, <laughs> I'm making you stand, but if it's kneeling, if it's arms wide, whatever it may be, hear this. This is from Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious and honored in my sight because I love you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been, and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some other God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. From eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. I am the Lord 
who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do, not, do you not perceive it? I am making a way. I am providing water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise.